0: Quick shout out from our sponsor, ShearID. Are you trying to boost conversions to your Shopify store? Need to drive more customer loyalty? Get results fast by offering exclusive discounts to consumer communities with ShearID. ShareID helps verify students, teachers, military, first responders, and so much more of these groups. With ShareID, you'll get a verified match in seconds. and You can spit out an exclusive discount for customers on the spot. Try speaking directly to a new customer segment with this verifiable identity without adding friction to the shopping experience. Continue to drive incremental revenue in the next 90 days post-purchase with more tailored messaging for your email and SMS campaigns. I personally tested ShareID to see just how easy it was to get it set up and I was pretty much ready to go in under 15 minutes. The onboarding was simple enough for me to follow as a non-technical person. Go to SheerId.com slash Shopify and start your free trial today. Once again, that's ShearID.com slash Shopify and start your free trial today. Hello and welcome to e-commerce uncovered. I'm your host, Matt Lady. Each and every week I get to talk with and learn from enthusiastic guests, freelancers, agency folks, in-house marketers, and founders, all in an effort to help you bootstrap your D2C brand profitably. We got two episodes a week, which will have you staying up to date on the ever changing industry and learning fundamental concepts and tactics to apply to your brand. Enjoy the show. Today's episode of e-commerce uncovered is with the ceo and co-founder of boom by cindy joseph the first pro-age cosmetic line for women of every generation the founder of smart marketer a platform full of courses mentorships and coaching about how to grow your digital brand the co-founder and ceo of zipify apps home of one click upsell and zipify pages both to help increase your average order value conversion rates and revenue on your shopify stores please welcome ezra firestone thanks for your time
1: all right happy to be here man and uh also happy to meet a fellow rider. I can see you got a, some kind of treadmill bike situation going on in the back. I messed around on a peloton for a while, so you know I've been in the game.
0: Yeah, I actually, uh, <laughs> I actually used to uh, teach indoor cycling uh, a, a while really? ago. I love many, many moons ago, br- briefly. So you it's, were uh, up it's fun. An instructor? Yeah, yeah. And then I would do powerlifting. So I've been, I've been kind of yo. In you, different were you cycle? No, it was uh, more as on the college campus I was at.
1: Okay. so But you had four. to be motivational. You had to be like, let's go, champ. Let's go. It,
0: yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm six 6'4", so like people are like, Dude, whoa, just big guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's big guys in the front of the room yelling at us. Like it is fun. fun. So, yeah.
1: yeah, you don't look 6'4 from this video, but I, I believe it. I always yeah. run into that on, on Zoom. You meet somebody on Zoom, you meet them in real life, and they're a giant. You're like, whoa, okay. <laughs> whoa, uh, yeah, Right on. Yeah. No.
0: Yeah. I oh, don't know. I see a uh, jujitsu in the back. That's a question for later. Uh, we'll get Do to you, that.
1: Uh, does your height help you in e-commerce?
0: Man, I, I thought I was interviewing you, but uh, well, you no. Got a I point.
1: You got a real high vantage point from which to look at the industry. You know what I'm saying?
0: <laughs> That's what the show's for. So I can talk to people and look at, look up and look over and help spot yeah. trends and see what's going on. So, yeah, I, I think I, I guess it does help. Yeah, Right on. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, then, yeah, please continue. No, no. <laughs> All good, uh, it, was, it was fun. So you've been uh, doing this for uh, over a decade. Uh, one episode I recent, recently listened to you in the past, you mentioned selling gift baskets on a Yahoo store back in 2005, six and seven. You would run Google ads and then fax $25 to this guy to then ship out the gift, gift basket.
1: Yeah, this was this was OG, you know what I'm saying? This was like shop uh, drop shipping before China um you know now when people think of drop shipping they think of selling like sort of useless crap from china to people um but the kind of drop shipping that i did was with american suppliers because there was not a um there was no way to engage with chinese manufacturers all the way back then so you had to find people who were making stuff in america and get them to give you like a cd-rom of their products and 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 like a a printed spreadsheet of how much each thing cost and then you know you'd put it up on a website and you know, run Google ads or do search engine optimization to get traffic to it. And then when you got an order, you'd fax it. I still remember it was like 2000. I want to say it was five or six. And some woman in Minnesota bought a Fu Manchu mustache from me. And I'm just some bum off a couch in Brooklyn. Actually, at that point I was in the Lower East Side, New York. And I was, I could not believe this was before the iPhone. This was before online commerce had really like, you know, uh, popped off. And, uh, I was mind blown. I called my wife. I was like, you will not believe it. Some lady bought a mustache from us. And it was like at that moment, this was real. It was like, holy shit, this is real. Like this could be something. People will buy things from you. Uh, It was cool.
0: How does one buy a mustache? Obviously, I'm I'm guessing it's a fake mustache. And it's
1: not. So there was these Jewish cats uh, who um, were in Midtown, this dude named Elliot and then this other dude named Moodle. And they had uh, this guy named Juanito who was my homie. <laughs> I, made, I became friends with him, who kind of like ran the whole business. And they would import these wigs from China: Elvis wigs, Afro wigs, mullet wigs, clown wigs, human hair wigs—you know, Cindy Lou Who wigs, everything you could imagine. Um, and they supplied all the Broadway shows with wigs, and they also supplied this New York City uh, super chain called Ricky's that would pop up around Halloween. And they were kind of like they had the lock on the wig market, but they weren't online. They were all and. Um, you know i i come from a, a eastern european jewish family and so i kind of had a little bit of the yiddish you know geschäft i could i could throw down a little bit because i i knew a little bit about the culture and so um i found these dudes because i was uh managing a makeup shop on the lower east side of manhattan um i had gotten a, i'd gotten a square job so i moved to new york when i was 18 to play poker for a living that was working out really well but i met my my wife at a yoga studio and. Uh, my now wife. And, you know, she was like, dude, you can't be up all night with a bunch of degenerates who have guns. Like, you know, like I'm worried when you're gone at night and um, you know, you need to find a a way that's more kosher to make money. And so I took this job at this, um, this um, special effects makeup shop. And this was kind of like, now there's like the show on FX called face off and like prosthetics and special effects are like, you know, sort of mainstream. Back then, it wasn't, and there was this woman, uh, really cool woman. She ran a company called Makeup Mania, and she was an early, early e-commerce business. And she had two physical locations. One of them was on the Lower East Side, and but she was in Denver, where she sold, you know, prosthetics and face paint and all kinds of stuff like that. And it was this tiny, tiny little shop. I mean, it was like literally like six feet deep, and it was like it was long, and it was it was a weird little place. Uh, but she made a lot of her money selling stuff on the internet all the way back then. Um, and she had this shop just to have the prestige of having a New York shop. And so I kind of managed that for her. Uh, and one Halloween, I remember, um, she sold, somebody came in and I was packing up a box for her e-commerce store of about 15 Elvis wigs. It was like 150 bucks or something for these 15 Elvis wigs. And I thought to myself, damn, if I could sell 15 Elvis wigs for $150, I will have made it. You know, that was like, <laughs> that was the bar. like that's how I'll, that'll be it, dude. I'll be, I'll be good for money at that point. Yeah. And, um. So I kind of like discovered that there was a market for these things in that way. And, and then I knew who the supplier was. I went to him. I was like, yo, can I sell these things on the internet? Um, and they let me, and uh, I ended up doing really well with that business back in the day.
0: So that's how it all started in uh, commerce has changed and not changed since then. So like uh, it's gone over, the iPhone came out, Facebook happened uh, yeah. now YouTube and TikTok and all these well, what's, platforms. What's
1: interesting about, it actually started for me before that because oh, wow. I, um, i um grew up at an intentional community kind of like a hippie commune for lack of a better way to describe it and it's a really interesting group and one of the things that they my parents do is like they have they teach courses on things like communication and relationships and jealousy and money and possessions and sensuality and kind of like everything that it takes to be successful at navigating a relationship with another human whether that's across an intimacy barrier or just a friendship or a family whatever and um you know, it's not like a for-profit institution. It's just kind of like they share their research. They've been doing, researching how to live pleasurable with other people for 50 years, a really cool group. And one of these cats that would come take these courses was a life coach. And he, you've probably heard this story if you've heard a bunch of my stuff. Um, he was doing information publishing where he was selling back in 2003, four five. Um, he was selling information on the internet um, about how to start a life coaching business. And right. he would have a book on how you could do it and this whole thing. And and I was staying up all night with a bunch of degenerates playing poker. And I was like, man, you're making a couple hundred grand a year from your laptop. Like you teach me that. And then I will teach you uh poker. And so we had this trade and he taught me search engine optimization and landing page psychology and webinars. And he had a newsletter list because back then what a brand was, it was simply just an email list. There wasn't remarketing pixels. There wasn't social media profiles. There wasn't, there was just a website and an email list. That was it. Um, and what he did was he, would put out content regularly to this group of people about things they were interested in how to be a better coach how to you know hold a good clean container for your clients whatever and then once a month he would launch do it do a launch for one of his products and I ended up taking over that business and running marketing for that business um you know taking it from a couple hundred thousand to a couple million dollars a year from two thousand I think I started with him in 05 and I ran it until about 09. and that business is where I really learned the secret to being successful online which is you know, um, aggregating a group of people who are sharing a collective experience and communicating with them about that experience through content, adding value to their life through that content, and then, uh, relating that back to products and services that you might have them, they might be interested in, but first and foremost, focusing on that relationship. And so it was kind of like, uh, it was a before social media, social media strategy, and I've sort of carried that strategy into every business I've ever done. I'm still running that same playbook that I learned from that guy. Now, of course, with new mediums and more sophisticated and all that kind of stuff, but fundamentally it's a similar playbook.
0: Yeah, so that that seems very similar or maybe inspired and to kind of redefine your uh, ICOSA, ICOSA framework. ICOSA uh, system. Yeah. ICOSA, yes, of how to like translate
1: which, that. Which- yeah, it stands for ideation, creation, optimization, sure. syndication, amplification. And if you're going to um, subscribe to the idea that it's a good idea to, you know, um, coalesce a group of people over time through content and keep them engaged with you in a conversation and build a relationship with them and then eventually offer them products and services, you first have to ideate. Like, who am I talking to? What are they interested in? What are the pillars of my content? Because you want to come back to the same pillars so that your content is thematically relevant so that there's things people can expect and come back to, uh, whether that's sustainability content or like what you do, interviews with entrepreneurs or, you know, whether that's, you know, in my case with Boom, like makeup tutorials or content about menopause or content about growing out your hair silver or content about, you know, um, be, being divorced and dating again or whatever it is that is the experience that the group people's happening having but you have these pillars of content and then you ideate on like what could I create in within one of those sort of fundamental pillars that would be interesting then you have to create it then you have to optimize it for all the social networks and clip it up and edit it and all that kind of stuff um, then you got to syndicate it which is pushing it out everywhere and then you got to amplify it with spend to make sure it gets seen and that system uh, it works really well
0: That's, that's a really good framework and something that a lot of brand founders that are listening and bootstrapped, you can do this and you can start small, one piece of content a month, twice a month, once a week, pick it with a cadence. And you've mentioned before, it's the consistency. It's the content pillars and the consistency. If
1: you look at my own personal brand, I have fallen apart on this in the last four or five years. I don't put stuff out regularly. Now you don't see blog posts from me, face to camera video. You see the occasional podcast, you see the occasional ad video for Zipify, which is a company that I'm uh, the owner of, but also like sort of a a core influencer ambassador for. But I no longer like Smart Marketer, which was my personal brand that I was sort of building a community around that ended up launching Zipify and launching a bunch of other stuff um, has now transitioned to be someone else's the face of it. There's different people like I'm no longer doing this for myself personally, uh, but it is something that I'll probably get back to Uh, because i think it's like just like what you're doing i think it's really smart if you have appetite and desire and interest it's a great sort of side business and side value creation strategy for any individual because i think we actually are still believe it or not for us in the tech industry it's weird to say this but at the very early stages of the creator economy i think that like there's there is more and better opportunity every day for creators to um create content and aggregate audiences in niche communities um, which I happened to do very early in the e-commerce space, got lucky. It's not like I was super smart or anything. I just was like, Oh, this is fun. Like I'm interested in doing this. I could see this being a path forward. And I was one of the only people doing it all the way back then. And so I kind of got a lot of the, um, I got a lot of value for my, uh, my work was good. Like I'm good at what I do. I work hard at it. I work hard at, uh, explaining it well and making it entertaining, like I'm doing good. Sh- I'm like walking with integrity deliberately. Like, I'm doing my best. But I also was lucky enough to be like, well, Shopify was like, well, there's nobody else. Why don't you come teach for us? So I was kind of like, I was right place, right time as an influencer. But I think that opportunity is available now in tons of categories.
0: Mm. Yeah. And it all got started because of this fr- framework that you've kind of helped translate from this, this life coach guy before life coaching became a big thing. And so you have another common framework that you've shared on Smart Marketer and a bunch of places is this love demo love in terms of how to set up an ad. So the IOCASA framework is more of organic than amplifying. I think Love Demo Love is more ad specific. So yeah.
1: where I have did a that ton come about? Of, yeah. um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of creating formulas that then, because basically I learned really early that um, scale came from outside yourself, from delegation systems and processes. You know, when I started Dropship e-commerce stores, do you know who else started right alongside me? Fucking Wayfair and those cats are now uh, they were doing the same thing i was which was you know uh, you know exact match seo based domains where you would try to rank for queries like grandfather clocks and you know dog collars and whatever and you would use drop shippers in america same business model i was a young scrappy kid with did no college education no money no financial understanding no systems no pr- i was just a do it yourself entrepreneur banging the box, making shit happen. And I had to learn the hard way about systems, structures, processes, financial intelligence. I had to learn by failing, by doing everything wrong, by not paying the taxes, by fucking up in every way you could possibly fuck up. Uh, Luckily, I did it at a small scale. And luckily, I'm not too proud to ask for help. I understand where my core skill sets are. And I also get that we all have blind spots and that even if you're good at something, there's always value to getting other people's opinions and input and feedback from the industry, from other people who are experts. Um, but anyways, you know, Wayfair went on to be a multi-billion dollar company doing the exact same thing today as we were doing all the way back then. I sort of petered out of that, uh, drop shipping. I, I had like 20 dropship stores at my height. Um, I maybe made a couple million bucks in that business, ended up selling a bunch of those businesses for, mm-hmm. you know, maybe half a million dollars back in 2012. Um, but I've, I've now forgotten your question, but I, but the point that I was making was, you want, you the, want frameworks. To yeah, the frameworks yeah oh, the frameworks scalability system
0: just... so love demo love
1: yep yeah so love demo love is one of those that has become popular in the community but you know um when i, I, I released this course in 2016 called facebook video ads mastery and this was the course that got your nick shackleford started your maxwell finn started a bunch of the cats that are now like the preeminent prominent mm-hmm. like educators in the space and that you know i was one of the first guys talking about you know, awareness, retargeting, and loyalty. Before that, it wasn't really a framework for that. Not that people didn't understand that and that it wasn't done, but it wasn't really widely known or understood. And we had kind of pioneered a bunch of those uh, strategies through support of Facebook. Facebook gave me a bunch of this information because I was an early Facebook advertiser. Um, But again, I think frameworks are useful because they allow people to replicate them. So I'm always looking to create frameworks that my team can, hey, okay, this is a structure and a strategy we can just duplicate and implement. And I came up with this idea for a Facebook ad, which was a testimonial sandwich, which is a face-to-camera customer testimonial of somebody who is um, explaining an ownership benefit of the use of a product or talking about the value that a product gave them. And it could be five seconds, five people, you know, bang, 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 could be one person. And then a demonstration of the product being used in its intended environment, and then more love at the end. So a love demo, love testimonial sandwich, it was just an idea I had for a structure and it just blew up and just worked better than any piece of creative we'd ever had before that or after that. And that, and that framework sort of caught fire in the industry and still works to this day. Now there's a lot more of it. Now you see a lot more of these they're everywhere. Um, So you need, you know, it can't, you can't just rely on that one framework anymore, but for a while it was like, you could just rely on that one framework to run, to be a core pillar of your creative strategy. And like in today's ad environment, creative is everything. So I do recommend still to this day, people go and, and mess around with Love, Demo, Love, because it works.
0: Love, Demo, Love, the original uh, UGC creator mashups and all these things where you have these paid actors or gifted products or influencers now talking at fo- with phones. Talk about so in the our case, it was, yeah. actual it was always always customers. customers. Yep.
1: Because there is something, I mean, look, I'm not that I'm against any kind of influencer <laughs> marketing. I believe in it. I use it at Overtone, which is a company I bought in January of this year. Um, I'm into it, but I think there's something to an authentic, uh, expression of someone's experience with a product that is always better than a, you know, creator. The problem is though, that the customers generally don't do high production value stuff and you kind of need a mix of both low production value and high production value. So influencer stuff is great too, but I would also recommend straight up traditional UGC.
0: It's a mix of both. Like you're saying, it's not one or the other. It's just knowing when to pull for that tool in the toolbox um, for your ads. Um, And then that goes back to the framework we're talking about before of the organic content, amplifying it. So it's not just one or the other, it's kind of using all of these to build a sustainable ecosystem for your brand. Uh, That's really neat. That's really cool. So I'm going to jump in and steal some questions from Twitter. Uh, People wanted to ask uh, Twitter.
1: I need to get more involved (laughs) on there. I don't have time to be writing on Twitter. I see people on there and they're writing all the time like, yo, I don't know where you get the time to be writing on Twitter all the time. You know, not that like I, I not that I don't have, my day is so full that I couldn't be on Twitter, but I have things that I feel are more meaningful to spend my time on. But I do really enjoy when I go on Twitter and I, I'm like super grateful for all the people who are involved in all the threads because it's like fun to follow like what's yeah. happening and get a, a pulse of the industry, you know, and it's like, um, so I'm not trying to hate on Twitter users because. Rock and roll, man. I, I like, uh, I have a Instagram on my phone and I, that's my preferred social network. And I'll, I like my little 30 minute limit for the day on there. Um, mm-hmm. But I like to, I like Instagram better. But anyways, yo. Yeah. Let's get So right yo from yo Twitter, Twitter
0: uh, quick little secret for you is a ton of people use ghostwriters for Twitter. Oh really? And like, so they'll take the, your content that you've already created and then just mash it up into tweets and right threads. Right, in, in the little tweets kind of, and stuff. post it for you. So, uh, uh, so, so that's another way uh, maybe to think about, uh, since you've written so much and done so much content over the years. So. Yeah. uh, My stuff is
1: interesting. When you look at the personal brand that I have built for the size of my email lists and the sort of as well known as I am in the space, my actual follower counts and stuff are really low based on, which is like, um, I've never cared about building a big audience. It's like, I just, I want to talk to e-commerce business owners who are interested in e-commerce and that's it. I'm yeah. not as interested in a general like population audience, but um, there is something fun about audience building. Maybe I'll look into the ghostwriter thing.
0: Yeah. So um, just, I wanted to make sure you knew because I, I was like, well, how are people doing all these threads? I'm like doing my job at this and that and trying to keep up. So I understand. So one question, uh, first off is from Danavir and so he runs a, a supply drop and email agency and then he's starting to build his own brands out so he's asking what opportunities are you seeing in d2c like e-commerce starting online both in terms of marketing and product categories of like, com- like tw- end of 22 as we're recording maybe as we look into 2023 kind of like what what do you see that like Any opportunities in terms of channels or strategies or tactics? I guess he's trying to ask uh, if there's like any wide open opportunities that you aren't like taking advantage of or are, and you want to share along.
1: I'm a big fan of of specifically selling to women because I was raised by a dozen women, and I have for a man for as much as a man can understand the psychology and mindset of a lady. I have a unique um, lens into that because I sat in thousands of hours of relationship counseling as a kid. I have a deep background in interpersonal communication and relationships It's probably what I'm best at is like keeping a group of people together. Like I'm really great at team building and communication and structure. And like, um, so I I like brands that sell the ladies. Um, I think there's just a lot of fun content. I think, you know, women tend to be, um, more consumptive of emotional content than men. And I like talking about that kind of stuff, like making content, that kind of stuff. I also really like beauty and, um, health specifically because of its consumable nature. I think it's a lot easier to build a brand in today's world. If you can have some amount of consumability, whether that's subscription, whether that's recurring, whether that's refills or whatever. Um, and, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, any category is good. Like pets are awesome. Like people, you know, less people are having kids. There's a lot more yeah. going on in the pet market. So any, any category of product is you can do really well. And the key is two things. One, you have to truly make good product. Like for example, this is a new, um, skincare brand that I'm working on. Um, I bought an Amazon company, uh, nice. for like 25 grand. And, uh, so small little company maybe did like hundred grand in total revenue, like not much profit. Um, but I'm not above that kind of an opportunity. I'm taking, you know, I've got teams and I'm interested in, uh, you know, you can play the game at any level and it's all fun and good. And ultimately, if you're enjoying yourself and making good stuff and you're profitable, you're kind of winning this game, regardless of size, even though everybody wants scale, there's a lot of downside mm-hmm. that comes with scale too, which we'll talk about in a second. But the point is that when you're make, you have to make sure you are making truly the best product that you possibly can. And then iterating on it, based on feedback from consumers, iterating on componentry, iterating on formulation, iterating on, you know, you look at Manscaped, they got the Manscaped one, the Manscaped two, the Manscaped three, the Manscaped four, the Manscaped five. I I don't think they're making any money. I think it came out that they're public and they're one of these companies that's fucking just spending hella hell of money on ads and influencers not making anything. So that's a shitty business model. But my point is on the product side of thing, they're making a whole bunch of stuff and they're doing it based on the feedback of their consumers and they're doing their best to reinvent a product category based on the complaints that were there about the sort of legacy product category. And I think, Ultimately, if you are not truly committed to investing in, um, really getting good at product development, you're never going to be that good at e-commerce. Like it's like product is everything because product is what brings a customer back. You can make the best promise and win the first customer and you'll win in the marketplace initially. But if your product is not compelling and continually getting better and the experience of receiving it isn't good and your follow-up and engagement and relationship building with the consumer isn't good, it's like. Product development is everything. And you have to get good at that in today's world because you're going to need people to repeat, buy from you. And if you don't, and if you have one item and you're not really good at making, like, get better at product development is one thing. And make sure you're making truly good shit that you can stand behind, that you have clear, unique selling propositions that you can articulate to the audience. And then, two is like, get really good at storytelling and creative because ultimately that is what engages and sells. I'm not telling you anything fundamentally groundbreaking, but it's like, yo. Traffic is always going to be expensive today, right now, today's environment, it's like expensive and dumb. Like Facebook doesn't, has lost its ability to smell where the good customers are. (laughs) TikTok's okay. You know what I'm saying? It's like, so things are going to, it'll get better from here. It won't always be this hard to target people on Facebook and get conversions. But, you know, um, ultimately good product and good storytelling is always going to win out regardless of the climate. And, you know, if you're starting in today's world, I'd start on Amazon. Um, because you probably don't have a ton of money. You're probably working a full-time job and start, you know, doing it as a side gig like I did. And the beauty of Amazon is all the customers that are there and the traffic sources there. And, uh, it is a race to the bottom and it is super competitive and there is a whole bunch of stuff you have to go through, but it's like, it is easier to make sales there than it is to run ads and make sales on your shop by site. It just is. And so if you can get some momentum going with your Amazon business, then you can roll, roll into DTC. At least you've got some revenue and some momentum.
0: A quick reminder from our sponsor, ShareID. Find your next lifetime customers by providing verified discount codes based on occupation or life stage. Speak directly to veterans, students, teachers, first responders, and continue to tailor your messaging to them in the future with post-purchase emails and text messages. Make them feel seen with your brand by using ShareID to seamlessly verify their email in seconds during the purchase process. Go to shareid.com slash Shopify and start your free trial today. Excellent. You're, uh, Dan, you're welcome. That was a great answer uh, to your question. Uh, so that was that was really good. Uh, I wanted to go off into another question from Sean from Twitter that was very similar to what you were getting at about team and structure and organization and bringing stuff together. So he was asking about how do you balance the stress of knowing that you do have a lot of Team members employees that depend on you and the businesses for their livelihood and their happiness and day-to-day lives like so how do you balance that between wanting to build these businesses and grow and scale and profit and serve the world unselfishly and then like the day-to-day like micro stresses or major stresses
1: so how you handle stress which is an inherent part of being the end of the line for the operation It's it's stressful. You have uh, like, we we should define what stress is in just a second, but um, you know, there is intensity in being the person who is guaranteeing the operation. You're the person guaranteeing it. You're writing the checks. You're saying, I'm going to get money coming in the door. You're saying, I'm going to pay your salary. I'm going to take care of your family. I'm going to give you health care and paid vacation and 401k, and you're going to commit to me your time and energy, and we're going to have a good trade-off and I'm going to take good care of you. That's an intense position to play, especially when things aren't going well, how you handle stress though, is how you handle any other emotion that you feel as a human being. And we get a lot of reality in society that it's okay to be victimized by our emotions. I was, you know, I only did that because I was angry or I only did that because I was sad or I only acted that way because I was annoyed and hungry. And it's like, okay, so you're feeling an emotion. But you still get to choose how to respond to that. You get to choose how – you. know it's like you wake a dog up in the middle of the night. It's not pissed off. It's ready to go. You have that same capacity. I'm not saying you're a dog, but I'm saying it's like <laughs> you do not have to be victimized by your circumstances. You can have a strong enough mindset and strong enough willpower and strong enough intention to in, show up however you want to show up. And I just don't buy this. I'm victimized by my emotional state. Therefore I have to be some kind of an asshole or be, you know, or behave in a certain way. Now this is not to say there isn't such things as mental illness and there isn't such things as depression. I am not, um, you know, uh, negating the reality of those things, but I'm saying for, um, you know, for, for the rest of your life, like the emotions that you feel do not have to dictate how you act. And it's like, if you are finding yourself constantly victimized by your emotional state, you might wanna work through your emotions and figure out how to process some of that and release some of that charge and create routines and habits and systems that enable you to um, navigate your life in a more pleasurable way. Maybe that's meditation, maybe that's moving your body, maybe that's talk therapy, maybe that's hobby, maybe that's you know intimacy and connection and fun activities outside of work. But it's like, if you're overwhelmed by the stress of your position, don't fucking play the position because you're signing up for a position that's gonna be intense. And if you're not up for that intensity, it's not fair for you to take that out on the people around you. So how do I navigate it? It's like, look, what I do is I do my best. I show up with a positive attitude and I try as hard as I can. And I bring, I put my best foot forward. I make sure that I'm well taken care of when I, so that I can take care of the people around me. I am full of energy. I sleep well, I eat well. Now I don't always sleep well. I got madness going on in my house with babies and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's like, but I do my best, right? I make time to move my body. I make time for how I set boundaries around my work life such that when I do show up to my work life, I can show up full and give it my all. And if I'm doing my best and I'm treating people with love and care, and I'm taking the next most loving move that I can take in the direction of the people in my company and also in the direction of the success of our, of our company. And I'm getting all the help I can find to get. It's like, I know I'm doing what I can do to serve the organization and you don't have to work for me. Go work, go find, good luck finding somewhere else that is better to work for, by the way, is my viewpoint. Um, and we've never had anyone quit in 17 years. I have 180 employees and never once has anyone quit. Not once. I've fired some people for stealing shit from me or or bulldogging people underneath them in the organizational structure or, you know, micromanaging or, uh, you know, not giving it their or whatever. But I think ultimately it's like, you know, yes, stress and intensity. And things not going perfectly or going well are part of the are part of what you're going to sign up for when you sign up to run a company. And if you're then victimized or upset by that, you were the person who decided to run the company in the first place. So stop doing it then, you know. Um, Or take it and say, okay, cool. This is an intense time. You know, when things get intense, that's not when you freak out. That's when you slow down take a deep breath. You look around, you don't take immediate action. You survey, you take inventory, you get, you know, you run ideas past your, your, your counsel or the people that you, you know, collaborate with who help you make decisions, hopefully in your organization. Hopefully it's not, you're just making all the fucking decisions with no support or feedback from anyone else. That's a terrible strategy. Um, so, you know, I think you navigate it the way you navigate any other emotional intensity in your life, which is with a positive attitude and with an intention to process it and internalize it and learn from it and see what's available there and then take action in the direction of your goals. Now, look, if shit's not going well, you got to fire people, right? You got to reduce overhead and reduce costs. Um, And sometimes that means leaning your team out. And I've been in that spot before and that's not fun and it's unfortunate, but you do your best. You give them severance. You, um, you know, you you do the best that you can by the people and people understand. Like if you're doing, if, you know, macroeconomic conditions, like, I don't know what the specific trigger for this question was, so I'm just kind of trying to find yeah. see what could <laughs> could have inspired this, but sure. I think you get what I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, it's really good. I, I like love the point about you don't have to act. Uh, this like right away. We have this oh fight or flight.
1: Yeah. When when shit goes down, I'm always telling my, I'm always uh, coaching my team on this. Some shit will go down and people will just get wild and start taking action and doing crazy shit. Like customers are pissed off about this thing on social media, delete the post or whatever. Like there's always people want to react immediately. It's like, no, you never do that. You, um, you, you, you wait a second, you survey. Now, sometimes there is an immediate reaction needed. It's like, okay, well this post pissed everybody off. There's no value in keeping it up. Let's take it down. This is a very minuscule example, but it's like, Generally, you, you want to, if there's a mistake that happened, you don't want to fix that mistake while you're in a mistake mode. You want to like, wait a second, surveil, take a deep breath, run some ideas behind, you know, with somebody who's a trusted advisor and then take action from a calm place. If you, if you're all fucking emotional and intense and you can feel emotional charge when you're communicating, you're all freaked out. That's the worst possible time to do anything. You've got to get yourself down to stasis, which is why I am saying, these practices that enable you to, um, you know, uh, control your emotional state are what make you a good leader because what people feel when you talk to them is not what you're saying. It's how you feel. They feel your charge. They feel your anger. They feel your jealousy. They feel your resentment. They feel your, uh, agitation. They feel your sadness. They, they feel whatever the fuck it is that you're communicating energetically. And so you have to make sure that when you're communicating that you're flat. So go run that charge off somewhere else. And then when you make the communication, do it from a flat place so that you're not, passing that on so they can actually hear you. Cause a lot of people think communication is telling people something. No communication is what somebody hears. A lot of people say some shit and it kind of lands right here. doesn't actually reach the target. So, and they're like, well, I told them it's like, well, you didn't take responsibility for them hearing it. Therefore you did not tell them.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's all really, that's really good. Uh, and sounds very similar to things I've learned over the years in personal relationships and in therapy and all that. So it, it's, uh, it makes a ton of sense that it also applies to business and work and employees and team and, and stress so it's all the same uh and we're all human we're all humans interacting with other humans whether it's personal or business right so um appreciate you sharing all that um that makes a lot of sense uh kind of jumping switching gears back to d2c a little bit uh, joe asks he's seen you run ads before for probably zippify where you've uh, had your shirt off punching a punching bag and doing this these kind of different stuff so he was just curious and wondering what you'd consider some of the craziest and non-conventional ads that you've run that have worked for you and kind of had it a... for reference he runs a 3pL for e-commerce brands. so maybe he's trying to figure yeah, out
1: I am um, yeah. I'm seeing a lot of this now like I kind of like um sort of started this ad structure where I'll, I'll do something that makes absolute, has nothing to do with what I'm talking, want to talk to the person about, but it gets your attention. Um, and so I've done all kinds of wild stuff, you know, from being in an ice bath to, you know, riding an electric skateboard to whatever, you know, dressing up as Forrest Gump, but like the, the, the idea is get somebody's attention with something that's sort of like a pattern interrupt is what they call it. in NLP, like, wait, what is that? And then transition into what you want to talk to them about because ultimately like first thing you need is someone's attention and just me sitting here face to camera at my desk is kind of boring but if i'm like yo check out my sumo statue you know i'm saying i got you know musashi maru konishiki and uh you know akebono here sitting over whatever like you just something that's just like whoa what is that and then yeah so i don't have off the top of my head whatever my craziest ads were but again with, with the zipify apps i am The influencer ambassador behind the brand as well as the ceo and and co-founder and one of my jobs is to generate attention for that brand and because i have um a sort of notoriety within the e-commerce space it makes sense for me to be one of the people inside of our ads and i'm i tend to like to do goofy shit, you know like stuff that's just kind of like fun and weird and whatever it's just like that is my personality i like i like um I like goofing off and having fun. And so then that shows up in the ads. But I think the idea is less about what are crazy things that I've done and more about the overall strategy, which is get someone's attention first. And, um, you know, I was not the first person to come up with the idea of a pattern interrupt in an ad, but, um, I think, it, I think I started doing it early in the e-commerce scene. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Especially for, uh, the Shopify app versus an yeah. info product or service or whatever. So yeah. I think that's what Joe was talking about. Mm-hmm. He uh, he does jujitsu too, and I, I know you do too. So maybe he could get into uh, a certain position and be on the mat as the first opening seconds of an ad for his 3PL and then <laughs> transition to whatever. Put you yourself
1: know. in the judo gi, man, or the jujitsu yeah. gi.
0: Yeah. So that's cool. Uh, Joe, you're welcome. Uh, I'll send you an invoice for that uh idea um so okay my brother's my brother's curious uh what belt are you in jiu-jitsu because he's a
1: purple belt well he probably roll me up i'm a blue belt in jiu-jitsu um but i started jiu-jitsu in 1997 under david terrell who in my opinion is arguably greatest of all time. Top five. I mean, he, he doesn't get the recognition he deserves because he was an early pioneer of the sport. Um, but, uh, he was Cesar Gracie's first black belt. Cesar Gracie's, wow. you know, well-known yeah. because he's the coach for Nate Diaz, Nick Diaz, Gilbert Melendez, Jake Shields. I was at Gracie, uh, you know, uh, their first ever Pleasant Hill studio when I was in seventh and eighth grade. Uh, you know, when, when Nate and Nick walked into the studio back when they were white belts, so I've been training jujitsu all the way since back then. Um, and I came up under David Terrell. I competed at the first couple Gracie opens, but I actually did judo starting at four years old. I was an international judo competitor, you know, nationals, junior Olympics, went to Japan, all that kind of stuff. I was pretty damn good at judo. Um, so that's kind of like my core sport. Um, I did jujitsu a little bit in high school. I got to a yellow belt under David Terrell. Um, kids couldn't get blue belts at that point. You couldn't be a blue belt as a kid. You had to be an adult to get a blue belt. It was just jujitsu was different back then. There was like, a, a, to find a purple belt, you had like one purple belt in Northern California. Like there were not a lot of them. Um, and, uh, so then I picked jujitsu back up, um, about five years ago and I trained for like three years, pretty steady. And I got my blue belt. Um. And then i moved out here into the middle of the country where there's the closest jujitsu studio is about an hour away and i haven't haven't been training since um but I, but i'm interested in getting back to it actually I, I do a little bit on my mat here i have friends come over and stuff but i haven't like been actively training in a while um but i'm, I'm a blue belt in jujitsu but my um uh I, what i have what i have is a lifetime of judo experience which gives me very good top pressure so judo the idea is it's a sport right Jitsu is more of a martial art it's become a sport as well but it's more of a defense system than, than a sport. Whereas judo is more of a sport than a defense system, although you can use them interchangeably uh, for self-defense. But the idea with judo is take the person and throw them to the ground. So take this person and against their will, put them on the ground. And if you can get them to land on their back flat, you win the match. And if not, you have to pin them there for 30 seconds. So, so my whole life I spent moving human beings around against their will. And judo is kind of cool because you use their energy against them. It's very like Aikido, like there's a kimono and your, your goal is to get them moving. and like you know, anyways, so that gives me a strong advantage over people in jujitsu because I spent my whole life pinning people to the mat. And so I'm really good in that position. If I can get you down and get on top of you, I have pretty good top pressure. So I have like higher than blue belt IQ in certain positions.
0: Nice. Yeah. And I think, uh, stay with me here. I think that leverage from, uh, doing jujitsu, uh, and judo for so long and knowing how to, lean, have people that lean and get them in a certain position and get them to take the next action or force them to take the next action translates to e-commerce when you're, you're talking about your ads and your storytelling. Uh, I'll tell you what
1: translates actually is understanding what it means to work hard. So, and, and seeing the incremental progress that happens over time. Like I trained with the Olympic judo coach for four years At the time that his daughter, I was one of the main training partners of a 2008 Olympian. I was nowhere near Olympic level caliber, but I was the main training partner. I went through those training camps. I, I worked at that work level. And what happens is you have somebody pushing you so far beyond what you ever thought you could do. And then you go out and achieve things that you didn't know you were capable of. Like there was this one cat, uh, this, this kid named Kwong, and he would crush me at the purple belt level in every tournament. And then we had a season where we went through, it was like Sayaka was leading up to her Olympic run. Oh, um, four, she didn't make the team, but then 08 she did. And uh, it was one of these, after these, one of these Olympic camps. And then the tournament season started up again. And I didn't, I was like maybe 13 at this time. I didn't really think I could beat this kid. He was bigger than me. He had always been better than me, um, but I smashed him. And then I was like, whoa, like I didn't like you, I, I was confronted with, The fact that the hard work that I had put in had shown up in the real world in a way that was, was beyond my expectations. And that one experience changed my mindset about what I was capable of with my own hard work. Like, oh, I could do anything, things I didn't even think I could do if I'm willing to put in true, consistent, every day, hard work in the direction of my goals. And I think martial arts and sports teach you how to work hard. Uh, some, some, when you have good coaches and, you know, not all, but like, I think that can be something you learn from, from that. And you also learn about team and community and, you know, you learn a whole bunch of great stuff, you know, respect and putting others first and all that stuff. Um, you know, when you're on a team, but, but in particular, I think the, like, I don't think a lot of people know how to work hard. I think people, you know, give up very easily. My experience of people has been, they give up very easily. They're not consistent with their effort. They don't track their progress. They're not working towards goals. Like there's like these sort of fundamental sort of simple structures of how to work at something that people just don't put in place and don't follow and don't do. And then they wonder why they're not having the kind of results they want to have. And it's like, well, you didn't actually put in the fucking work.
0: So that's more relatable to bootstrap founders and they have limited time and energy and resources and it's working hard on the right things and doing those consistently. So how do we help how would you help bootstrap founders, early stage people know what to work on in the early days of growing your brand. You say you're at a billion dollars in revenue and you want to keep growing and being profitable. How do you know what there's
1: there's three Is, Are you hearing that? Background noise. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh um, no. I heard like a piano or something. Um That was weird, but there's three things to work on marketing, product, and support. That's it. Better marketing, which is better ads, better funnels, better advertorials, you know, better copywriting, better optimization, you know, like better pop-ups, better emails. Like you got to work on marketing. You got to work on product. And then you got to work on support, which is the communication with the customers, you know, the feeling of the product arriving, the, the ride-alongs, the the you know, um, chat and phone, like the engagement side of it. And marketing is also content and icosa and social and engagement. It's like those are the only three things to work on. Now, of course, look, at a certain point you got to understand finances and you gotta understand, you know, how to read a PL and you gotta understand, you know, um delegation and systems and processes, but that shit is all come in later if you're at a million dollars. When you're at a million dollars, marketing product support, put your attention there and just hire a a competent bookkeeper and CPA firm and don't worry about the rest until you get to a couple million bucks. Then you can start worrying about, you know, understanding really good structure. I actually created a course called Smart Business Systems and I have a free three-part mini-series that is, don't even buy the course, just go through the mini-series, which is, the first one is about um, team, which is, How do you get a group of people interested and inspired and working together? And then the second one is systems and processes. So once you have the group of people, who they are, what they're gonna do, frameworks for how to communicate with them, what are the systems and processes you put in place for them to work on in your business? And then three, money, just how do you not fuck up the money? Because that's where everybody goes under is lack of financial intelligence, overspending, not understanding inventory carry and cash flow carry, not understanding tax liability. It's like, how do you handle money? And those three things are what I, you know, usually tell early stage founders to invest their time and energy and understanding outside of marketing product and support.
0: Wow, that's awesome. That's really, uh, it is simple marketing product operations. And, and I'll send simple. you a
1: link to the, um, you know. Um, Great,
0: yeah, we'll make sure to include that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Okay, a couple more questions. We're going to start landing the proverbial podcast plane and get going onto the landing strip and wrap up here soon. Um, and, uh, another question from uh, Danavir. He is the first question we asked. And so we're talking about D2C founders. We're talking about building these brands. Uh, you've gone from running and owning brands to now continuing to do so. You have Smart Marketer. You have Zipify. But you didn't start with all these different things. So how did you, how do you, how should DTC founders think about wealth generation and creating, like stacking that up and building that over your career versus, oh, I have this one brand to start. You see success with that. You start growing. How do you start to dip your toe into other directions or how to build this ecosystem um, similar to what you have? If someone's interested in doing something like that.
1: Wealth creation comes from asset liquidation. It doesn't come from cash flow businesses. If you look at how the baby boomer generation got rich as a as a generation they took the money from their 401k's and their jobs which was their cash flow they invested it in real estate their assets they let that asset appreciate over time and then they sold it and that's where their wealth came from and you know for me I'm a business owner and so my wealth is tied up in the assets of businesses so I'm looking to create value in my businesses so that I can one day sell them I don't care how much money I'm able to pull from them you pull enough to pay for your life but the idea should always be I'm going to sell this brand at some point. I want to do it in five years. I'm trying to get it to be as valuable as possible. I'm reinvesting hundred percent of what I have back into it to grow it because I'll make 80 or 90% of the money that I'll ever make from this brand the day I sell it. And, um, so basically the idea is use your cash flow from your business to invest in assets that will appreciate over time or that you can support in appreciation over time. The reason why I bought overtone, right? Bought that for about 10 million bucks. Um, is because that's an asset that I can oversee the growth of, right? It's, it's an asset that exists that it ha- has a certain value today that over time, if I work on it, I can increase the value of it much more than I can increase the value of a piece of, of Airbnb house or something, right? That's going to be subject to the market. I, I support investing in real estate as well, but it's like the idea is um, wealth creation comes from asset liquidation and Ultimately, you have to use your cash flow to buy assets and then let them appreciate or support them in appreciation and sell them. And how you do that is up to you. And the way that I do that is by buying and building companies. Of course, I've got real estate holdings and I've got some money in the market and shit like that. But like the bulk of my wealth has been generated and still exists in, uh, you know, business assets. And I believe in that. And I think, you know, you go deep before you go wide. So you get one thing really, really working, get a team in there really running at you you actually get it fundamentally um, you know exclusive of you and then you can move on to something else or maybe you're only working 10 15 hours a week in it cuz it's good you got a good leader there you got the team you got the systems you don't need to be fully in it and now you can start something up and I've never started something until something else has been solid right um, I didn't start zippify until smart marketer was solid I didn't buy overtone until boom was solid right like I maybe had other brands, but I had people in there running them where I was just a financer. Like, you know, you can really only hold two or three projects at a time with your, there's not much more space in your brain for more work than that, unless you don't have a family and you don't have hobbies and you don't have other shit you're doing. Okay, great. You're just burnt. You're grinding, but that's going to last for your twenties. And if you're doing that in your thirties or forties, you're probably fucking miserable and unhappy. And so, you know, there's. You got to also manage the number of projects that you take on. Like, what is the point if you're miserable and working all the time and burned out and tired? It's like, okay, so you made some more money, but at what cost?
0: Yeah, I, I heard you mention before that money can buy you just about anything besides intimate connect, intimacy, connection, and love.
1: So money can buy you comfort, yeah. but it cannot buy you fulfillment. It cannot buy you happiness. Uh, fulfillment comes from within, it comes from being content with your life and you can't buy that. Now you you can definitely buy yourself some comfort and that's really nice to, to be comfortable. But like, ultimately I think that, you know, for me, satisfaction and happiness comes from intimacy and connection and relationships. And, and obviously look, there's a part of it that's like, you know, you feel good about your production cycle, about your contribution to the world, about being able to support your family. Like it feels good to win at a production cycle, but you, but you have a job, right? You yeah. get, you, you do your job, maybe hopefully you like the people you work with, you get paid, you have a production cycle that, that has a start and end time frame that you win at. And that's enough to feel good about. You don't need more than that to be happy and content and live a really good fulfilled life, much happier than people with a lot of money. It's like the, what your production cycle looks like and your contribution in your life to the society, societal workforce looks like is sort of irrelevant. I mean, as long as you're happy with it. And I think that's the 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 key is like, what is it that? Where do you find fulfillment and contentment? And you know, that's a that's a personal choice, believe it or not. You know, it's like the Buddhists; they'll fucking you know, when you go to a monastery, they'll give you a pair of scissors and they'll say, "Go cut the grass," and leave you out there for six hours. And what you'll find, is, and you'll be like, "What am you know?" But you, what you'll find is, oh, there's little bugs down here, and it's kind of beautiful, and I can hear the birds. And you will find that you can choose to enjoy whatever circumstances you're put in. You can find. You, you can be interested in your world. And that is really where the magic is. It's with you being interested in what's around you and what's available to you and bringing interest and bringing enthusiasm and bringing intention. That's a choice. And you get to choose to do that regardless of the task or set of circumstances that are in front of you. As long as survival is handled, you know, if you're not, if you, you don't have food and water and shelter, you're okay. Now we're t- having a different conversation, but if survival is handled, you have food, you have water, you have shelter. And now, and and now then there's levels of comfort, as I mentioned earlier, right? Money is going to help you with that. And it's nice to be comfortable, but they did this study at Harvard or something said basically after like a hundred grand a year in Western society, maybe it was 75, you don't really get much happier with more money um, now. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, more money, more problems. There's more bullshit to deal with the more money you have. You know what I'm saying? Biggie said it. And yeah. uh, and that's cool and that's fun. If you want to chase that, I'm I'm a big fan of wealth creation. I'm into the money making, money and generating resource and using it towards causes in the world that I find noble. I like that game. That's fun for me. But it is by no means some righteous fucking endeavor that any every anyone and everyone should want to engage with.
0: Right. It's it's your the takeaway is f- figuring out that out for yourself and knowing do I want to put myself into the stressful end of the line being the ceo and building these teams and being responsible for all this stuff you've chosen that uh, not everyone has to choose that so you can be interested and be fulfilled in many other ways so um uh, that's awesome man okay so that's uh we can wrap it up there where do you want to point people to where do you want to send them uh where do you want to link people if they want to chat with you or hire you or hire your team all that sort of stuff what you um apply? you can
1: check me out on instagram at uh, instagram.com forward slash ezra firestone i'm on twitter i'm on uh youtube i'm on uh you know i'm on all the social platforms i'm on linkedin although i'm not really on there i'm not on tiktok um you can find my blog at smartmarketer.com uh, i'm around you could find me if you're interested
0: cool Awesome. Go check out smartmarketer.com, Ezra Firestone on all platforms. Really appreciate your time today. It was uh, was was awesome. It was a pleasure. Uh, Everyone else listening, thanks so much for tuning in again to another episode. And we'll catch you on the next one. Appreciate it. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I love being able to do this, continue to learn, and meet people in this industry. Every rating, review, and episode you share with a friend means so much to me. As i'm bootstrapping this show as part of my media brand high key geek if you haven't checked out my other show brand builders you should it's with myself and tom brown and richie Mashiko. two times a week we talk in a much more casual setting and we think out loud we brainstorm and we share our lessons as we continue to operate and run businesses in the ddc space today we're not We didn't exit. We didn't just consult and advise now. And we don't, we're in the trenches as we have like every day still. So we're learning in real time and sharing it with you as we go. That's Brand Builders on High Key Geek YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you find your podcasts. Catch you next time.